0: Would you pray with me? Almighty God, open our hearts and minds to your message for us in this hour. Shape us and mold us so that your image shines brightly in our lives. Amen. Challenging love. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed the Apostle Paul's understanding of love, specifically agape love. As you might recall, there are several words in the Greek language that uh, we use for love and each with a very specific connotation. The kind Paul used in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians to describe a superior form of love that even surpasses faith and hope was called agape, (laughs) which was defined as a, a warm regard or an interest in another. We also noticed or noted that this was the same form of love used by the author of the Gospel of Luke to describe how Jesus said we should treat our enemies when he said that we should love them. In our passage this week, we're going to look more closely at Jesus' instructions to his disciples when he told them that we should love our enemies. Now, these instructions came amidst a group of lessons that Jesus gave to his followers. After returning from a a night of prayer and discernment, Jesus had gone up a mountain to pray in solitude. And when daylight had come, he called 12 of his followers, 12 specific people whom he designated to be leaders of his ministry when he left. These are known to us as the apostles. And after they went up to meet with him on top of the mountain, receiving their new role, they all came down together to a field where Jesus proceeded to teach a group of lessons. This passage in Luke that summarized the lessons is remarkably similar to the passage known as the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. But since it was presented while they were on level ground here in Luke's Gospel, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. And while the Sermon on the Mount is a longer summary that takes up three full chapters in Matthew, Luke's summary of teachings is just 30 verses in one chapter. So our passage today comes from the middle of the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel of Chapter 6. In this passage, that we, <clears throat> we get this uniquely Christian teaching, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. These are really difficult lessons to accept. So don't feel like you're alone if you're having difficulty with these teachings. The early fourth century Roman Emperor Constantine valued and respected the Christian religion, but his inability to fully accept and live by teachings like this kept him from getting baptized until his deathbed. (laughs) While this lesson may sound impractical at first glance, There are good reasons for following, and it has many benefits as well. So let's look more deeply at it. So first, remember that loving your enemy with the agape form of love does not mean that you need to somehow force yourself to have a deep affection for your enemy. No, it means to have a warm regard for your enemy and look out for their interests. Through your expressions of concern for your enemy, you just might win them over, turning your enemy from a foe to a friend. Likewise, acts of kindness to those who hate us could result in a very different relationship. The animosity that people feel towards us sometimes has no known origin. Feuds can perpetuate long after the original insult or injury was forgotten. But the cycle of violence that was born out of retribution can last many years. Kindness can break that cycle of violence and motivate people to reconsider their feelings of ill will. Likewise, blessing those who curse you can have the same effect. When you bless someone who has cursed you, they may be motivated to reconsider why they cursed you in the first place. Such a radically unexpected response to animosity takes a great deal of self-control. In a sense, these actions can only be taken from a position of strength, and they demonstrate a strong confidence. They require a personal decision that's counterintuitive to most of our cultural norms. And they say to your opponents that you are not going to follow their lead. Rather than responding predictably to insults or injury with more insults and injury, offering, offering kindness and blessings demonstrates personal strength that shows that your confidence in God's faithfulness is much stronger than your fear of society's judgments. Rather than worrying about appearing vulnerable, your actions send a message that you, know, you have, feel no need to impress others with demonstrations of the same kind of aggression that were exerted against you, because you know that violent reactions are really a sign of weakness. Taking control of the situation and facilitating an attitude of compassion and kindness demonstrates a strength, a strength of character, and is really the only way to break the cycle of violence. In our search for understanding how to love our enemy, it's important to also consider responses that are not helpful. For example, the teaching to pray for those who abuse us is not a request for us to accept abuse. We might pray that our abusers understand the harm that they're inflicting and that they'll repent from their sins. But we are not expected to allow abuse to continue Similarly, specific scenarios that illustrate how to love one's enemy are not intended to teach us to be victims. I think some of these scenarios are understood better when we consider the cultural context from which the teachings were given. For example, the lesson to give up your shirt to someone who takes your coat could be considered confrontational in this first century community codes could be taken as collateral for death, but the law described in Exodus and in Deuteronomy places limitations on what can be taken from you and when it should be returned. In Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 12 and 13, it says, if the person is poor, you shall not sleep in the garment given you as the pledge. You shall give the pledge back by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in the cloak and bless you, and it will be your credit before the Lord, your God. Offering your shirt would put them in an awkward situation that exposes their unjust attitude to the rest of the community. Likewise, if someone strikes you on the cheek, this passage suggests that you should offer the other. Striking the cheek of a person was considered a a public insult or a curse, so offering the other cheek effectively makes the statement that your insult is not accepted or even worthy of a challenge. Go ahead, strike the other cheek. This demonstration of strength and self-determination tells your opponent that you will not be drawn into a cycle of violence, and you consider their insult to be petty. The other two scenarios mentioned in the teaching To give to everyone who begs from you and to let people keep what they they have taken from you requires careful discernment. Rather than look at these scenarios legalistically, I think it's helpful to consider the principles behind the teachings. Be kind to people. Engender an attitude of compassion in your community and do it to others as you would have them do to you. This golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, has been discovered and rediscovered in some fashion in many, many different cultures throughout history. But it has unique meaning in the context of this teaching. As Christians, we know that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet we have been given grace through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, which has allowed us To come back into relationship with God, even though we didn't earn it. We can't earn it. It's an unmerited gift from God, from Christ. And just like the mercy offered to us through grace, we are expected to offer mercy to our older brothers incessantly. He was clearly his father's favorite son, and he would often tell on his older brothers when he caught them doing something wrong he would report back to his dad what they were doing. One day, his father sent sent him out into the fields to check on his brothers who were tending flocks. And as he approached them, a couple of them started to conspire to kill him. They hated him so much. However, the oldest brother there, Reuben, Convinced them not to kill Joseph, but he relented to letting them haze him a little bit by throwing him into a pit for a while. However, while Reuben was away for a while, a caravan passed by. And the other brothers decided to sell Joseph into slavery. That's another way of getting rid of him. By the time Reuben got back, it was too late. Joseph was gone. The boys concocted a story for their father, telling him that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, and Israel was devastated. Over time, Joseph ended up in Egypt, and was found to be quite gifted at dream interpretation and managing household affairs. He eventually gained the favor of the pharaoh of Egypt by interpreting the pharaoh's dream, which warned about an upcoming famine. So Pharaoh put him in charge of preparing for the famine and distributing the food once the famine hit. Not long after the famine started, Israel sent his sons to Egypt to get some food because they were hit by the famine as well. When Joseph's brothers arrived in Egypt, Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize Joseph. After putting them through a few challenges, he eventually revealed himself to them. And this is where our Old Testament reading this morning picks up the story. At first, they were dismayed and and found it hard to believe. I mean, they had sold their annoying little brother into slavery, and somehow he became one of the most powerful men in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. They were completely at his mercy. Would he seek retribution? I mean, after all, an eye for an eye was the rule of the time. And if the situation was reversed, they would probably have gotten revenge themselves. But this is not what Joseph chose to do. He attributed his circumstances to the work of God and saw the trials that he experienced as a gift that had prepared him and his people for that famine that they were experiencing. With the consent of Pharaoh, Joseph brought his entire family to Egypt and took care of them for the rest of his life. The older brothers continued to live in fear of Joseph, but he didn't seek revenge, even after Israel had died. This is the kind of mercy that Christ expects from his followers. And he expects more from his disciples than he does those who don't claim to know him. This is why he expects us to love more than we are loved, to offer more acts of kindness in the world than we might receive ourselves and to give more than we get. We are expected to strive to be merciful just as God is merciful, to be holy just as God is holy, and to be perfect just as God is perfect. Of course, we can't be just like God, but we are expected to strive for those ideals. And we're taught to avoid trying to be God like God when it comes to certain things like judgment and condemnation, as we read earlier. These are activities that we are to leave up to God. Fulfilling the teachings of Christ can be challenging. It requires a strength of character to make the conscious decisions to avoid the commonly accepted and expected patterns of retribution. Yet we must also remember to balance our search for peace and compassion with a healthy respect for justice for ourselves as well as others around us. We are not called to be victims, condone mistreatment, or consciously succumb to manipulation in order to appease malevolent people. We are called to love, to love in a way that breaks the cycle of violence, restores relationships, promotes respect, and honors the image of God in which we were all born. It doesn't necessarily lead to an easier life, but we are told that it will be more more fulfilling in the end. The measure we give will be the measure we get. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Whether it's in this life or the next one, God only knows. But we are promised an abundance of mercy, compassion, and kindness if we offer these things to others. So I urge you this morning to accept the challenge of discipleship that Christ has laid before us, and love your enemy just as you have been loved.